1: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachary, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Karen Pinto, associate scholar in religious studies, at the University of Colorado Boulder. We're discussing her book, Medieval Islamic Maps and Exploration. In this book, Karen examines medieval Islamic cartography with a focus on a particular type of map produced called collectively the Book of Routes and Realms. Many of the maps featured in this book are visually stunning and feature far more than geographic information. Karen untangles their meanings in her detailed study. Karen, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network.
0: Thanks for inviting me. It's a great honor. Um, I really enjoy listening to uh, NBN, and uh, it's a wonderful resource for all of us. So, thank you for doing this.
2: Of course, you know th- th- this book is. It, it, I, I've I've recently kind of undertaken a uh, you know reading books about maps, and and it it, it really is just an uncre- an incredible resource to look at because they really do tell you so much more than just the the, the landscape of a place. They tell you about the people that were making them. Uh, and, you know, before jumping in and talking, you know, directly about this work here, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: Yeah, so um, I came to America from Pakistan. I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. Uh, and surprising it, as it may sound, I just had a, a, I have a wonderful memory of my childhood. I had um, I went to uh, a very interesting, the Jesuits ran education in the Middle East and South Asia. And I I don't know how much you've heard about that before. But of all things, I went to a a school run by nuns, but mostly Muslim kids attended. So Benazir Bhutto, for instance, very famous people attended. It was a very good school. And my parents were very, we were quite poor, but they believed in education and, and they scraped together to send me to a good school and to keep me there. So that was one side of it. And so I took my education very seriously. And the other side of it was, and this is something very unusual that sort of come up from listening to your podcast, is um, I grew up quite sick. um, And it's something that's been percolating in my head as to how that's influenced my work. Um, I had a very rare childhood disease called nephrotic syndrome and it ended me up in hospital for about two or three months a year from the age of three to about nine and as a result you know when you're a small child in a hospital bed what do you do well you read of course or you have someone read to you right Um, I think I started reading very early I did jigsaw puzzles and because it was Pakistan, we didn't have a big Influx of good quality jigsaws. So there was a, an old aunt who had like a half a dozen or a dozen, and pieces were missing. And they were small jigsaws that I could make on a on a table that was a lap table for the bed because I was I was forced to stay in bed, which was really difficult as a child. You want to be running around, but I think that made me a scholar, and it made me really interested in details. So one of the things with those jigsaws was. Um, pieces were missing, and it was always the same pieces, so I kind of memorized that, right, Um, and the images and understanding them, and then all the books, and um, I collected so many books that by age nine, I opened uh, the first local lending library in my community because I was a nerd. I'd become a nerd because of being in hospital so much, and I think that really influenced where I went. Um, You know, I came, I was very lucky to come to the U.S., so I had Um, uh, good fortune. I think I was the first student from Pakistan at Dartmouth. And that also happened by pure chance because there was a Dartmouth alum who was visiting and interviewing and happened to come to my house and thought she really needs a fellowship. She's the poorest in the bunch. So I got this wonderful opportunity. And I came to Dartmouth. And at first, you know, everybody coming from Pakistan, they all want to do economics. I mean, this is the big thing. You do economics, you become um, economist at MIT, not at uh, in the World Bank or uh, IMF or something like that, um, and that was your path forward. So my first semester, I took economics, and I I managed to do okay in micro, but macro was utterly disastrous, and and I thought, you know, this is this is not the way to go, and then I went fell back on something that I had from childhood. And I've been listening to these wonderful podcasts you have. I listened to the one with Emily Yeh yesterday and how she was talking about geography and how she was lamenting from K to from kindergarten to 12th grade, you don't have much geography in the classes. But I grew up with geography in the classes and geography was one of my number one subjects. I was like I was I was my teacher's favorite. I drew maps, et cetera, of my own. And so I thought, why not go do geography? And so the geography department in um, Dartmouth really welcomed me and very happy. And they did some very interesting, they, you know, this, this was still at the point where GIS hadn't started yet, but there was still a lot of, attempt to kind of do some kind of digital mapping but it was sort of hand digital mapping if you know what i mean there was a lot of hand pegging and there was a lot of um on ground work which has also really influenced my work so one of the things and i'll talk about when i work with the maps that i work on i actually go to ground which is very unusual most people don't go to ground for medieval maps but i go to ground for medieval maps because a lot of places have gone missing or we don't know what they are and i think that comes from early geography training Um, and then after that I got done in two years and I thought okay what do I do now Um, so I said oh I'll do a history major as well so I did a double and I went to history and I did a history major Uh, and then after that I went to Columbia, and I was in the international affairs program and then by accident I took a a course with a medieval Islamic historian Richard Bullitt who has affected many students and Many students who were actually in the international affairs program joined uh, to do graduate work with him. And that's how I got into Islamic studies. And then as chance would have it, I ended up working with another medievalist who pointed me in the direction of the geographers. And I accidentally found the maps in Butler Library, the collection of original black and white uh, prints that were done in the 1920s on very fragile a turn-of-the-century French paper that was very, very acidic, and uh, those books are falling apart, so sort of crumbling, and that was sort of how I got going, and I did a master's essay on the Mediterranean and the depiction of the Mediterranean in the Islamic maps, and this became so popular, and so many people were seeking it out, and it won a prize, etc. My advisor said to me, I think you should continue with maps, and of course, you know, I was Yes, that's my love has always been from childhood, uh, something that I really love. And um, and so that's how I kind of moved on to it, because even when growing up in Pakistan, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have GIS maps. A lot of what we were doing, figuring out where to go uh, there's a very the Sin Desert is at the back of the big city of Karachi. It's a huge desert. There's no maps there, you know, and we would take trips there as children. Um, uh, My father was involved with the waterworks over there. And I would remember sitting in this Jeep and thinking about how, where are we, you know? How do we know where we are, right? And it's a fascinating thought to start thinking about how do you map yourself, right? So I think that's part of what I bring to these maps is this idea of how do we conceive of the world, how do we how do we um how do we draw the world around us? And when I teach, when I teach on have taught classes on the history of mapping, that's one of the first things I do when I go into class, is I don't try to tell them, okay, I want you to think like this. I want to know what you think. How do you how do you conceive of the world? Let's start there and let's unpack from there. Because when we start unpacking, your vision of the world, then you can start understanding how other people are projecting the world and why they're projecting the world in that way. You've got to be able to get to that background unpacking stage. So it's not just what you see on the surface, but what lies behind. Um, And so that's very fascinating. The other, you know, along the way, there's a lot of theory on space, on place. Um, I'm a big fan of Borges, and, you know, Borke said that the only real map is the one-to-one map, which would cover the world. And here's this wonderful piece of the one-to-one map that I find quite fascinating. But getting into the crevices, you know, is, is sort of what I really, really enjoy doing. I, I like going for uh, the not known. I like going for the not obvious. I like going for the unconventional. To me, those are, those are fascinating topics of much greater interest. Um, so some of my work, for instance, one of the first pieces I wrote when I started working on my dissertation was on this very unusual uh, group um, on the world maps of uh, from the Islamic collection. So I did an essay on the Mediterranean at the uh, master's level that garnered a lot of attention. And then after that, I, realized I needed to go to the manuscript libraries to figure out what, you know, because the the maps were only in black and white. The ones that Conrad Miller printed in the early uh, 1920s were all black and white. And as I said, they were all crumbling. And he dated all the maps by the original authors. But the problem is, as I figured out, once I went to the manuscript libraries, is not a single manuscript exists with maps from the original hand of the original author. They're all a couple of centuries later. So you can't really say this map was 10th century if the copy is actually 14th or 15th or 19th. You know, some of them go up all the way to the 19th century. It's quite um, amazing that the tradition was copied for so long. And that's another thing I look at is, is why do traditions continue when the information around us is changing. You know, this whole idea of how something becomes classical and ossified and uh, is continued in that sense as, as a classic, sort of in the way that we still read the Odyssey today, right? Homer would be really proud after all these centuries, right, that, it, that it, we still read it. Um, it still engages us. So I think in that sense, you know, the way in which classics have continued and continue to draw attention is also quite fascinating. There's tons of stuff with these maps that are really interesting. But going to the manuscript libraries was a huge, a huge boon. I just opened a whole new world, a whole vista, because first of all, I get to see the maps in glorious color. Uh, Many of them, some of the most elaborate ones are painted with lapis lazuli and gold, uh, just beautiful images. And then I get to date them. I became by default a macro photographer. I already had interest in photography when I was heading out at Dartmouth. I worked for the local newspaper and I was uh, their photographer. And so I took my own pictures and figured out developing and all that fun stuff in in uh, in the dark room and um when i got to the manuscript libraries i realized i needed to capture these images and i got permission i was very very lucky uh, in fact i have the largest store of images from topkapı saray palace which is where a majority of those manuscripts are so what happened was and what happens generally is you know, you have a empire group takeover. And what do they want? They want the goodies. They want the good stuff, right? They want the the fancy manuscripts that are illuminated and all of that. So the Ottomans were the last major empire in the Middle East. And when they after they come to power and they get quite powerful, they're getting gifts. They're also conquering and acquiring manuscripts from major libraries in the Middle East. And a lot of that comes to Istanbul. So if you want to work with Islamic manuscripts, you have to be able to get into the manuscript libraries in Istanbul. And it's very difficult. They're, they're, they're guarded with a great deal of administrative loopholes and paperwork, etc. cetera. Um, and so you have to be able to uh, penetrate. And I was able to get all those permissions. And I was very lucky. And I got to work with all these manuscripts at the and then Suleimania Library and other libraries in Istanbul and Turkey. I even got to work with the Sacred Swords Collection, but that's a whole other side to my work that I haven't um, had a chance to write up on much. Um, but I became a macro photographer and I started photographing these manuscripts myself and I acquired three to 4,000 images. So what I have in my hands is multiple lifetimes worth of work. It, it's taken a while for me to figure out that I'm not going to finish it all. Um, so I really value actually this opportunity because it's putting it out there for other people. Hey, I have all this material. Let's get together and do stuff. I'm trying to find a way to preserve this material in a way that that's at a library or some kind of online access that people can have access to because I have a huge storehouse of images that, uh, have come about as a result of my research. So anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I just want to highlight that, you know, you, you've collected for, for listeners, just for context, you've collected, uh, you know, photos and and documents of, of nearly a thousand years worth of maps from the, from the Islamic world. Um, you know, the, the, central maps that you focus on it, it's, uh, maps collectively referred to as, the Book of Routes and Realms, or the KMMS maps. So I was wondering if you just introduce what the KMMS maps are uh, and, and why they're, they're so fascinating to you.
0: Okay, so the word KMMS, I came up with it, actually. Um, it comes from Kitab al-Masalik wal mamalik which is the Book of Roads and Kingdoms. Um, and uh, prior to the reason I came up with, and, and S is the word in Arabic for image, surat. So, there are some manuscripts from this tradition that don't have maps. So, I added the S to indicate those manuscripts from this tradition that do have maps to clarify that. So, that's where it's KMMS. And prior to coming up with that acronym, it used to be called, and still by some, erroneously called the Al Bakhi tradition. But what I found out during my research in the manuscript libraries is that there are no manuscripts going back to this mysterious um, person that was, the material was ascribed to by Orientalists from the 18th and 19th centuries. So I decided to make a break from that old, outdated way of approaching it and use this new acronym. Um, And yes, you know, the collection is indeed uh, very big, very rich, and I do hope for an opportunity to find a way to share some of these uh, images online. And actually, I was listening, I don't know if I should mention this, but I was listening to this very interesting podcast of yours um, about our books. And I started thinking, maybe I could do one of those, or some of one or two of those maps in our books. Wouldn't that be fun? So, So I think this is a wonderful way to introduce people to opportunities.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Indeed. and I'm sure I'm sure Mel, uh, who run, Mel Rosenberg, who's um, also uh, an NBN host, would would absolutely uh, love love that. Our um, books is a fantastic project for those who don't know. Um, you know, w- with with this uh, the, these maps that you look at, uh, you know, there's a long history. You look, go back looking at maps starting in the 10th century. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us about the history of the Islamic mapping tradition? Uh, What does the mapping tradition tell us about the medieval Islamic world, just as a a brief intro?
0: You know, it's it's fascinating, right, that um, we start thinking about how do we start mapping, right? So one of the things that's so intriguing about the Islamic mapping tradition is as far as we know, there is no other Atlas tradition prior to the Islamic mapping tradition. So what you get in the pre-Islamic mapping area, uh, and I think I've got a work actually coming out on uh, the influence of Arabic annotations on a medieval European TIO map. I think they must probably have seen the TIO map because if you look at the structure of the Islamic maps, you can see how there's sort of a TNO that's been broadened out. So that's one possibility. But prior to that, of course, you know, we have various attempts. You get into this question of what is a map? How do you define a map? Um, This is an endless question. Nobody has an answer to it. Uh, Because, you know, when you get into the ancient period, uh, we have a map here in Boise, Idaho. It's utterly fascinating and competes with the earliest known map, uh, dates from 6000 BC uh competes with the uh, the map uh, in Bedolina in, in Italy. Uh, and it shows the Snake River and uh, places along it. But it's very disputed because it has no labels. And and so a lot of what comes down to what people accept as a map is when it has a name of a place, which is, which is quite fascinating if you think about it. And this is a side note as I get to answer this. I was listening to a really interesting uh, podcast on the BBC the other day about um, uh, this this young man from um, Sierra Leone, I believe. His name is, I think, Mamadou Beni. I'm, I need mean, to double-check that. But apparently, he really wanted to go to Cairo, to Al-Azhar, to study. And he did a bunch of things. He tried to start a shop. It failed. He did a bunch of things to try to raise money. And various things happened. And finally, one day, he said, OK, that's it. I'm done. I'm actually going to get on my bike and bike from uh, Sierra Leone all the way to Cairo. And I think it was like approximately 9,000 miles or something like that. And I'm going to go to Al Al Azhar where I want to study and say to them, I want to study here and please help me. I'm I'm poor. I don't have a big, I need a fellowship or something. And what does he do to get there? He puts a piece of paper on this piece of paper. He writes, the names of the major sites along the way that he needs to get past to get to Cairo. And that was an amazing eureka moment for me and and got to this idea that, um, also related to another podcast you have, that um, we don't have an end of history. We just have a continuum of history. And that in the way that Janis Joplin said and prior to her St. Augustine said, it's all the same day. Johannes Joplin used the F word in there as well, and St. Augustine doesn't, but it's all about a continuous present. And I thought, that's exactly what Islamic maps are too. They're all about places along the way. So they probably were done, or at least inspired by traders going from one place to another. And so you get these kind of route maps because actually, if you think about it, right? if if maybe you or one of your um listeners thinks about you know how do you if you didn't have your phone with a GPS app to call up on it, or if you didn't have uh, the internet, how would you map how do you map your way from one place to another? And you don't always use the GPS, right? You've memorized these routes. So then you're not look using a GPS. What are you using? Right. And that's where you come into these nodes, right? And how mapping is really about the connection of nodes. So what the Muslims is, appear to do is they take this earlier material. Now, what is unclear is which one comes first. Do the so the the manuscripts, and as I said, they were creating sort of the earliest atlases not sort of, these are, to the best of all of our knowledges, the earliest extant atlases. They contain 21 maps, one world map and 20 maps of different regions. Now, the regional maps are all route-based. So it's going from one place to another, and there's a route setup. And it's they're very carefully passed out. So, for instance, I'm working on a new book on the Mediterranean and the Medi- where I'm updating the Mediterranean essay and putting it out as a book. Um, and one of the striking features of the Mediterranean maps is they focus on the places around the Mediterranean. They don't go inside at all, just those right around the shore. If you go to the map of North Africa and Spain, which they call the Maghrib, then you have the area by the shore, but you also have the inner the inner zone. It's it's fascinating the way they were breaking this all up and the way they were doing it as as linked to roots. Then there's the question of when does the world map come into the into the picture? Is that part of the original? Uh, idea and then the regional maps develop or are the regional maps uh, first and then the world map comes in? It's a really fascinating question. And then the other question I find very interesting is that of influences. So I I, um, I remember I was at this, these wonderful meetings on the history of cartography, international um, history of cartography that take place biannually. And I went to the first one um, and I was sitting there in the audience and this amazing um, thinker, Christian Jacob um, was working on, um, he also works on maps. And he got up and he started giving this talk about, well, now if we use take a drop of Chinese mapping and a drop of medieval European mapping and a drop of Jewish mapping and a drop of African mapping and what do we get? And I wanted to jump out of my seat and say, you get Islamic mapping because that's the real beauty of Islamic mapping for this period is it's bringing together all these traditions and then building on it and creating a much broader vision, a more macro vision. So they take the the image of the world that's coming probably from the West, from the from from the Western tradition, the European tradition, where you get the Teomab tradition. But they were very limited, right? It's the Mediterranean, the top of the T was um, the Bosphorus and the Nile. Um, that's how you get, by the way, to, to um, you know, orient yourself. You know, why do you orient yourself? You orient yourself because you are orienting yourself towards the orient because that's the way to maps pointed with jerusalem on top so towards the the orient and so they take that and they expand it and they add uh, the uh, red sea and uh, the indian ocean and the encircling ocean and then they add the countries and the territories and they go all the way out to china in fact as I was listening to uh, Emily Ye's uh, Ye's podcast, i uh, she works on Tibet, and they have Tibet on the maps. So Tibet's on the map from the tenth century onwards. And then there's the root-based tradition. Now, if you look at the Chinese mapping tradition, which is also, I mean, the earliest example of paper that we have that comes from China, has a fragment of a map on it. So the Chinese tradition was doing very, Um, focused regional and actually even regional was a broadening out it was very focused maps and particular territories uh estates you know it starts off in a very focused way and then broadens out they don't start incorporating world maps into the tradition until about the 11th 12th century so they there's Still not, and even that is more. It's more about developing a broader map of China, not of the world. So it's very interesting, and I think one of the most positive ways we can think about Islamic mapping is to think about how it consumed all these drops and then came up with a version of its own. A version of its own that was probably also impelled by their own needs, because they're big travelers, they're big traders, and the big uh, the way you have. The rise of um, Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula and eventually Mecca is because of the camel caravan trade. And they're going, they're in big demand, uh, especially the the people who can manage all these camels. And if you read, uh, for instance, Richard Bullitt's Camel and the Wheel is fascinating about how uh, the wheel takes over because roads in the medieval period were quite difficult to maintain. So the camel becomes very important. So you can see this as part and parcel of that. And then you have, as the Islamic empire is growing and you have uh, the um, scientists and thinkers coming into uh, their their own and developing um, theories and um, uh, trying to measure the, the circumference of the world Um, in Islam you have to pray, you know, the injunction is to pray five times a day and you're supposed to pray towards Mecca so that right away the minute you leave the Arabian Peninsula and you need to point in the direction of Mecca five times a day for praying, you right away create a need for direction you have to know which way you're pointing so, you know, of course you can do approximately with the sun, but more and more um, schemes develop and instruments develop to um, point you in that direction. David King uh, has done amazing, amazing work on uh, Qibla charts and Qibla diagrams and and instruments uh, for finding the direction uh, to Mecca that, that get combined with astrolabes. So it's fascinating.
2: A common feature of these maps is the encircling ocean motif, which you you briefly mentioned. Uh, Where does this come from and what does it represent?
0: So what i like to say to my students, and uh, I would recommend to all your readers, is go to Google Earth and get yourself to the point where you're over the Arctic, maybe. There's a way in which you can do it so you will get to see that the Atlantic and Pacific are still one, we are still encircled by an encircling ocean. It isn't until the early modern period that you start to have as you have um uh, shipping and you know trans transcontinental shipping taking off when you start having the 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 big ships developed and the big discoveries and the discovery of the Americas and that's when you start to get an effort to break up the encircling ocean. So you get the Atlantic and the Pacific and then you get um, smaller oceans and seas and that. And I think that was an effort for us to try to make it less intimidating maybe, but we still have an encircling ocean. And um, any direction you go in, if if you think about somebody trying to map before GIS, I mean, that's one of the questions that I... I find quite intriguing and I think about a lot is how do you map when you don't have, when you, you, don't have satellites. I mean, you don't have a way to be right on top to figure out what's going on. How are you mapping, right? How is this going on? It's fascinating. But one thing you, we do know is any direction you walk to eventually you'll come to some kind of sea, you'll come to some kind of ocean. So the idea that our world is surrounded by water must come from that, right? And then there's other questions of, you know, well, you map by roots, you know, from here to there, from there to there. And so you put those roots down. That's one way to do it. But how do you put the outlines? How do you know shapes? How do you figure this out? It's fascinating. And a very interesting um, map that I actually hope to do more work on. So I do work on the KMMS tradition, but I also work on other maps. So, I've done work on a very interesting bathhouse in Jordan um, called Khosr Amra, where there's an angel or Cupid-like figure bringing an orb to a seated figure near the door, who I believe is the prince, Al-Walid, who later on becomes the caliph. He hung out in this bathhouse uh, for... Twenty odd years while he was waiting to become caliph, and it was his party spot, and he had a lot of fun here. Um, and so I think Cupid's bringing him the moon, because if you think about it, right? you're you're on Earth. You don't have you don't have uh, telescopes yet. You don't have satellites. How are you figuring out what the world looks like, right? Well, one way to think about it is to look at the moon, right? And so you get a very good, and especially in the Middle East, in in areas where there's, you know, the desert and there's a lot of darkness, you get really good images of the moon. So I think we have the earliest painting of the moon. But I've also started wondering to what extent this thing, the moon is a reflector of the world, you know, and what if we take it there? And I haven't actually written this up yet, but it's something that I'm toying with. Um, Another thing to think about is I found a really interesting piece in a manuscript in Turkey that was done, that is the Central Asian Turkic view of the world. And now that's a very interesting angle, very interesting idea, because they're coming from the high steps and and the mountains of, you know, we're talking, this is some of the highest peaks in the world. Imagine thinking of the world from that perspective. To what extent are they influencing? Because the the Turkic groups are starting to come in to the Middle East by the ninth century. To what extent are they bringing a vision of the world? So, you know, it's, it's wonderful because it's why I encourage people to work on this material. There is no end. Uh, There is no terminus point. You can keep on working and thinking about ways in which, um, uh, these these pieces emerged and and what they mean and, and what are these places on it and why do they signify? What do they signify? I mean, one of the things I find fascinating is when we look at maps and we have a map on a page or even a map on a phone now, you can only have a certain number of places on that because it's a limited space. What places get on that and what don't? Now, I don't know if we could start asking how Google Maps decides what's going to be on that map or not, you know, does that have something to do with Bezos? Maybe that's too extreme, right? But in terms of the manuscripts, we can start to talk about how the people who made these had something in mind when they were picking certain people to be on them and certain people to be not. So I'm fascinated by absences. I think absences are really, you know, crucial. I'm also fascinated by uh, places and people on the maps that we've never heard of. So if Syria is on the map, if um, Egypt is on the map, this makes sense, Th- there's nothing unusual. They should be on the map and you know, and we should investigate it. But if a really obscure East African group called the Buja are on the world maps and no one's ever heard about them, and they have a double birth, not just one space allocated to them, but two. Then you're like, really? Who are these people and why are they on the map? And as a result, I went on to, into this odyssey of trying to understand who the Buja were and how we had never heard of them. And I found out they are still in East Africa. They are still downtrodden. Um, they were in the area of major gold mines, and that's probably why there was so much interest in them. But the uh, odd thing I discovered is that we all know about uh, the Buja too, unfortunately, uh, through a racist rhyme uh, that you might have heard from Rudyard Kipling. Uh, Have you heard of Fuzzy Wuzzy? Uh,
2: I haven't, haven't, now.
0: Oh, good. That's good to know it's dropped off. But I grew up in a generation in which we were taught it as children. Um, And it's a reference to the Buja. And it comes from Rudyard Kipling. So, but we all forgot about them. We don't. We we knew who they were from cultural um, from cultural connections, but we forgot who they actually were. And they're enshrined on the medieval Islamic world maps. It's wonderful. So things yeah, that, like that. I think they're fascinating.
2: No, that, that that's um, you know that that interest about why or that question. You know why certain groups, why certain places. Are on maps or not on maps is I, I think a, a fascinating way to, to consider uh, you know the political decisions being made because because maps are political, uh, they aren't just just for uh, for navigation, but they're also very political. Uh, and, and I think I, I think this is something that you also get into when you talk when you look at because you know, as you described, like these these maps were made with expensive materials uh, by artists. Um, you know, who, who are the patrons mostly of these these uh, these medieval cartographers and what were their objectives for producing and, and financing the production of these maps?
0: Fascinating questions. We know some, I've been digging into some, we don't know others. We don't know the actual financing. But um, one of the, and I'll tell you about this really interesting manuscript I discovered, but I want to just touch back on something else you said, which is these places I'm working these days, I just finished um, an entry for a travel volume, um a volume on medieval travel, and I was asked to write on Mecca. And one of the things that I was thinking about was, why isn't Mecca on the world map? Jerusalem is on the world maps in medieval European maps. So it's a very, very, it doesn't show up until the 15th century. Is it related to the fact that Hudge actually develops quite late because it was unsafe. So there's all sorts of interesting questions in there, uh, even with places like that. But in terms of patronage, we don't know that question definitively. I've um, theorized uh, based on annotations in the colophones of the manuscripts and based on where I found the manuscripts to be located. One of the big discoveries I made recently was I found... um. Uh, A a particular kind of seal uh, that is used in Norman Sicily, an Arabic seal on a very early, one of the earliest extant KMMS manuscripts is located uh, in Leiden. And it also has a very unusual signature that no one has been able to fully identify. And... To, not to uh, make this longer, but I think it's—I think that it's a four-letter signature, and I think it reads Fred, and I think it reads Fred actually in both directions. And if I'm right, and this was in Norman Sicily, it was the late twelfth uh, century. Um, it would have coincided with Frederick II, who was. Mm-hmm was raised in, um, in, in Palermo in Sicily, that's where he grew up and there is a chance, I think a very good chance that he consulted this manuscript. So then we can start thinking you know was this manuscript made as a gift for him uh, uh, because the dates coincide with the dates of his birth for when the manuscript was made, it has a very clear colophon. We might have, we definitely have an alama in there, which is these seals that come from only in uh, Norman Sicily. And this mysterious signature, which could look like Fred. Now, once he becomes emperor, he doesn't actually sign anything. It's just a stamp. It's just a seal. So nobody knows what his actual signature looked like. But it's just such a, um, it, it opens one's mind to think about a major conqueror like Frederick II, the major emperor who goes on to to such major conquests and becoming the Holy Roman Emperor, et cetera, was he influenced by one of these atlases when he was a teenager? It's a fascinating question. So it's it's a compelling question. We just don't know definitively and you have to really dig and you have to dig into the colophon and the materials used to construct these pieces. And um, uh, that's what I like to do. I like to develop theories on that, so.
2: Even just asking the question or or showing, you know, you know, demonstrating how little we actually know about what was occurring in the past. You know, we we the evidence that that we have only represents, you know, a percent of a percent of a percent of of what we can know today. And opening one's mind to that, to that the the possibilities that there are things that happen that we simply don't know about, I think is really important because. Anytime we can have our oversimplified narrative about history uh, exploded, I think that's that that helps us think better about about you know the world that we live in today.
0: And you know, one thing Caleb that I find fascinating, and I I feel has not been done enough, is the connections. So a lot of people work in just their little area; they don't really connect out. But I'm really fascinated with the connections. So one of the areas that I'm pushing quite a bit on. Is the connections with medieval Europe. The old style thinking, it's quite really quite strange, is that there were no connections. <laughs> you know, they got nothing, they didn't talk to each other, they didn't share any information, you know. And that still continues. You still get that, you know. I still get that reaction to my work sometimes, and I'm just completely taken aback. I mean, these guys, they were very much involved with each other in war. You know, when you're when you're living in Jerusalem side by side, you know, for quite a while, <laughs> a good century there, right, and the Crusaders were there, you don't think there's any connection? No no material went back and forth. There were no ideas shared. Um, I love, for instance, the podcast you have by Michelle Kahn, where she really blows this up, and she talks about how the translation movement in, the, in medieval Europe accelerated because the The European thinkers were so keen on getting the Islamic works translated that it 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 motivated that translation movement. So, um, you know, i I'm really interested in breaking those boundaries, breaking those artificial boundaries. I'm very interested in the connection with Chinese mapping. So that's another area that i'm I'm really intrigued at to look at the connections. And I, I really hope that that's how people see this more rather than just one particular group's work and that particular, and then other groups work and the other, because we're all interconnected and um, you know, that's the beauty of it and the beauty of how we've been so influenced by, the, by each other's ideas and thinking, how does this play itself out on a map?
2: You you also examine the Ottoman maps that were produced uh, and the Ottoman Empire is a very fascinating uh, empire, uh, in part because it, it lasted so long. And I was wondering if you could just talk about the Ottomans and, and what you learned for, from them and your study of, of these maps.
0: So a couple of things. Actually, I actually have a new piece coming out for your uh, readers who might be interested. It's in Turkish. It's going to be my first article in Turkish. I'm fluent in Turkish as as part of working in the manuscript libraries. One of the things I'm very interested in, and this piece is on that, is the uh, border between Byzantium, which used to be called Biladar Room, and the Islamic Caliphate. It's the Fogar al-Shamia. So I've been working on that border a lot and looking at how it developed and morphed over time. And in fact, the new piece coming out looks at it from the point of view of the recent earthquakes. So that's the other thing I do. I don't just in the medieval period, I look at modern connections to the medieval period. It's something I'm also interested in. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is how this becomes a ritualized border, a border where, uh, you know, you have famous Abbasid caliphs go throw themselves at that border. And then the Mamluks and the Ottomans come along and they just wipe it away. It doesn't exist anymore. So now it's just in the books and on the maps and in paper. The other thing I'm fascinated by with Ottoman mapping is the influences from Islamic mapping. So there's been kind of, again, a rigid separation. It's just Ottoman mapping almost on its own uh, influencing European mapping. But what about the Islamic influences that come in that helped build Ottoman mapping that then are exported out um, to Europe as well? Um, there's there's some wonderful maps that I have been yes. working on also in the manuscripts in Kufi uh that are that are inspirational. So um, and I think with the Ottomans, you know, those are the that's the empire we remember the most. But in terms of the Islamic mapping, we have to think about the Caliphate, right? The Caliphate goes from the seventh century, uh, it peters out, uh, and by the by the time the Mongols uh, take them out in the mid 13th century there the, there's not much really left of them but we've got a good five centuries in there so the islamic history does have these major empires that have their shadow but even in the in empire i don't think empire is one single thing there's all sorts of things going on at the edges of empires which is why i think i like that border area so much and i actually spend time on the border area there Examining the sites, um, digging them up, um, understanding the layout of the structure of the of the network there, just by going to to visit on site uh, to understand them. And I really encourage any any listeners thinking about even working with medieval maps, go on site. It makes a huge difference uh, to our understanding of the spaces and places.
2: Uh, for my final question, I, I'm curious. You know, big picture what this study for you has has revealed or or taught you about the study of maps uh, and also the study of of Islamic history?
0: That we can use many sources for our understanding of history, that we shouldn't just be um, devoted to just a textual source, that images are very much a source too. And I think that's the number one thing I've really brought to the fore in my work, is when we look at images, we can find a completely different angle on history. Because in the text, it's hard for us to know why this place versus that place, because everything's written in there. But in the map, it's siphoned out. So how can we better penetrate history, or, or at least penetrate it through another window, through an alternate way of viewing? is what I believe I have brought and continue to bring to my work. So and I'd like to thank you as I go for this incredible opportunity. Uh I'm really impressed with what NBN does. Uh great work. And uh I was very impressed to hear that 18 to 23 year olds are really interested in listening to that's fantastic.
2: Yeah, I think you know it's uh I, I discovered uh NBN when I was in college and it was like this unbelievable lifeline because even when you're in college, you know you have your professors, but it's so hard it's so hard to know what current contemporary research is being done out there. Uh, you know, in class, if anything, you're most exposed to to the classics of a discipline, but not the the the, the current papers. Uh, so you don't know what's out there. And I think that you know that's that's what I love about it. and And when I saw this book, um, you know, i I thought it would be a really fascinating. In part because I was really curious just to see the photographs that you've taken, you know, I, I do want to highlight that that this book is it's it's jam packed with with incredible color images of these photos that you've taken of of these maps. So you know, if for that alone, I, I do recommend people go and, and take a look and at it.
0: I encourage anybody who's interested in following up. I love uh, being in touch with students. I love being in touch with people who are interested in this material. So feel free to contact me. Um, My email is mapscale at icloud.com because I'm the girl who works with maps. So thank you very much.
2: Of course. Thanks so much, Karen.
0: Thank you. Wonderful opportunity.